time. Now we just have your audio recordings. Yep. That's right. I, I write everything, so I don't have any shorthand. <laughs> I just write it all down. So. Yeah, you know, from that, I cut Jonathan Edwards a little bit of slack because I was thinking about that. You know, because last week I was a little frustrated, not frustrated, but when I just read through it, I'm like, man, he's just run on sentences. Yep. Big paragraphs. But, like, he didn't have Microsoft Word. No, he didn't. <laughs> I mean, no. You're writing. No. When the thought comes to you, you start writing it in there. It's like, well, this is where it's going to fit. Right, you don't go back and. Yeah, there's no cut and pasting. Yeah. yeah. So I, I he would, interestingly enough, Edwards would go, uh, if you read his biographies, he would go out um, the way he would kind of think through things, is that he would go to horseback, go out into the woods, yeah. ride around horseback, and uh, just as things would come to his mind, he had what we would consider modern day kind of like sticky notes, mm -hmm. but they were just notes with little pins, he had little safety mm -hmm. pins, and he would just quick write a note down, <clears throat> pin it to his shirt, keep riding, no thought, take it right down, pin it to his shirt. So oh, he said yeah. when he came home, he had an order to it, and his wife would take them off one at a time. <laughs> Based on the order of thought, <laughs> and, and she would thing. and she would put them all together for him. Yeah. So you imagine, imagine him getting off the horse, is full of sticky notes, you know, all over his body. Like, okay, this one's first, this one's second. <laughs> and actually, she um, there's an interesting, funny enough, uh, there's a biography written by Sarah Edwards about Jonathan Edwards, and the title of the book is called "Marriage Married Marriage to a Difficult Husband." <laughs> so it kind of gives you. He wasn't the easiest. To, he was a very one 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 way thinker. All right, well, um, as we jump in today, before we jump into our uh, notes uh, for class three, our discussion is on Mr. Charles Spurgeon, mid-1800s in the city of London. Uh, thoughts on Mr. Spurgeon's sermon, things you noticed about his, you noticed a very different style, probably, than Mr. Edwards. It's 100 years later, at least, so... Which I've thoughts? never read this guy, read him. I mean, I've heard Spurgeon, mm -hmm. seen quotes, but never really read. He's a lot funnier than oh, I expected. Yeah, he is. Yeah. There were times where I just started laughing because of, yeah. the, you know, talking about the windows, and, you know, that I thought was, it just surprised me. Yeah. I thought he'd be a little more dry and academic. No. He, I mean, to have what, so take someone like Edwards. Edward had, had, had like a small, you know, country church, basically, you know, and, uh, Spent the last years of his life working with American Indians and tribes, and not ever having any. And he was at like, what was he? What was the start? It was in the Yale or Princeton. That started off as a pastor's college. I forget which one it was. He was the president of that. So you get the idea. Very academic. Yeah. Couldn't get a large crowd together to probably speak because he probably wasn't very compelling in that way. Um, Spurgeon. I mean, there were thousands upon thousands. I've been to Metropolitan Tabernacle in London before, and it's huge. I mean, so yeah. I mean, you have to have a sense of, we'll talk about that later, we're talking about presentation. Mm -hmm. Humor is important. I mean, you don't want to be a stand-up comedian, but humor has a way of breaking up the thought process, has a way of kind of bringing people back to focus because everybody kind of wanders off as you get too much information and then to kind of laugh. It's like, oh, that's right, okay, mm -hmm. we're back here, right? So it, it, it has its has place, and it is effective if used well. Yeah. So, yeah, he has, he has a lot of humor. And he actually would not, he would... Study a passage, study a section, you know, during the week, not write anything down. This is how, this is brain. And so he, he would, uh, Sunday morning, pop out of bed and take basically like a sticky note and write three notes on it and walk up there and preach a 50-minute sermon just off the top of his head. <laughs> so, yeah, very uniquely gifted man, yeah. What else did you notice from his? It was very practical. Okay, very practical, yeah. Yep. For, for his... I don't know, the time period, I guess. I was expecting more stiff and dry. Mm -hmm. And he, 
yeah, it was interesting. It was enjoyable to read. Well, he so he lived in a culture like so. It's a, you're talking eighteen mid eighteen hundreds in London and in, in mm. downtown London. And if you ever watched uh, read the book, um, oh good grief, what's the one with the the kid that's um, um, he's homeless, he's an orphan. Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist. Thank you. Same time period. Okay. So Oliver Twist kind of give you a cultural idea. A lot of orphans, a lot of homeless. So very, very like urban, broken, poor. Um, so yeah. So he had to be very practical. You know, it wasn't it, they weren't sitting in an academy. You know, <laughs> and uh, studying. You know, in the lofty tower, as it were. I mean, it was people dying pretty, pretty normally. So. So that, which that drives you to be a little bit more practical, right? You yeah. know, mm-hmm. Sit around and just kind of contemplate, like, we need to do something with this. Because we may not be alive tomorrow, <laughs> kind of thing. Right. So, yep. Now, did he, uh, he taught, he has college. He did, yes. This is a, he had a, yeah. this is from um, lectures to my students uh, section, which is kind of his, speaking to his, uh, his students, yes. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. That's yep. what I was thinking. He had a pastor's college he started. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. He had a pastor's college he started. He, started all, he also started an orphanage as well. He had an orphanage in London that he started. Um, matter of fact, it was, I mean, I, I can't remember the, the thousand kids or so. Because it was during that time, and a lot of kids were just running the streets. They had parents. There was no system set up for orphanages. Similar time period to George Mueller. If you recognize George Mueller, started orphanages. Same idea. There was a lot of need for that. Um, so, yeah. So he started a pastor's college. He started an orphanage um, as well. Your so thoughts? Like he mixed a lot more application mm-hmm. into underneath each point. Whereas, mm-hmm. like with Edwards, you you asked us to circle like all the U's, mm-hmm. and like the first beginning part of Edwards was he was not necessarily addressing you, right? Um, and then like suddenly he switched yep. in the title, at least under mm-hmm. application. Whereas um, Spurgeon, like it seemed like he would give a certain point. I know this is a lecture, so it's probably a little bit less formal than a preaching, sure. but like he would definitely address and give like a practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and again, there's no as we talked about before. There's no, no. I'm having you read these different people, so you kind of get. There's lots of different ways of doing it. Spurgeon's method is more, um, a little bit more modern too. It's kind of hung around in terms of there is that kind of like have a have some major points on each major point. Have an illustration. You have a truth illustration. Apply it. Have a truth illustrate it. Apply it. Right, and that's kind of the rhythm, and that really flows with kind of a Western mind. You know, kind of for Western. You know, society. Mm-hmm. We like to kind of that, that. We like to break things up in little pieces, bite-sized pieces. And he would do that. So, truth, illustrate it, apply it. But the funny thing was, I thought because I numbered them, I had I came up with eighteen yeah, a lot, yeah. eighteen points. <laughs> but it didn't feel like eighteen. Points, sure. Because they were small and quick. Yeah. And then he tied them in together, and then he, he tied each section together, mm-hmm. and then he tied that to the next section. Yeah. Right. It was just all like that. Yeah, you got to be super compelling to have 18 points, right? I mean, you you really got to be good. So that's not a not something I would advocate any of us for. But I'm being short. I listened to it. I bought it on Amazon. Yeah. I was trying to just get one because yeah. Edwards is too hard to read. I did that last week, but I couldn't find it. Yeah. So I listened to it on it. Got them both, and I got them all. 24 of them. Okay. It was great to listen to. Yeah. It was not. I did not. Yeah. Wonder off like he talked in that first mm-hmm. section about wondering off. Yep. He kept me there. Yep. But I, things that study got me were prepare, don't feed them raw food. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. They need to eat fed food. And at the end, just the emphasis on pray. We have to pray, prepare, but we mostly we have to pray. Right? Mm-hmm. Pray that God will do what he's going to do with you. Yep. Right. Good.
Yeah, final thoughts. Next I think week. it's really important how, how well they understood his congregation. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you say he had thousands of people in it. So yep. that just to understand, you know, the farmers are concerned about their crops and the moms are concerned about their babies. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you can't go over, you know, you expect to have a contract with these people for 40 minutes. And if you go over <laughs> that, you know, you broke your contract. Right. I think that's, it's, it's really interesting. He, he does, if you listen to any other reading of his sermons, he, he, apply, he does a good job of applying um, truth to very sec, various <clears throat> sections of society, right? The mom, the farmer, the industry worker, the you know the guy who's in political politics. The I mean, he'll just he'll have a way of just addressing a why, which is why he gets such a large audience because he's going to talk about me. You know, <laughs> he's going to talk about my life here at some point, um, and that was that was that was helpful. Yeah. He did. He died like in his fifties, didn't he? Wasn't he? I, I don't remember how long Spurgeon lived for. I remember he had a lot of health problems. I know, yeah, he had a lot of health problems. I know he would, uh, which was, a, I guess, a nice place to live where he was. But he would go to the French Riviera once a month. Um, that's where he would go, and just to get fresh air because the, the air was so bad in London. You're talking 1850s, start Industrial Revolution, just dirty, grimy, you know, quality. Yeah, quality of air was bad, so people didn't live long anyway during that time period. So yeah, he would go out once a month out to French Riviera just to get fresh air. And I think he struggled with, I, I heard that he struggled with depression. Mm -hmm. He did. Mm -hmm. Yep, he sure did. All right, well, very good. Uh, next week is a uh, guy named J.C. Ryle, maybe a guy you haven't heard of as much as you would have heard of Spurgeon or Edwards. Um, Ryle was in the same kind of time period over in Liverpool um, in the U.K. The only thing I know about Liverpool is soccer, but there is other things going on in Liverpool. Back then, it was the poorest area of all of the UK. So he worked with primarily homeless a lot. So um, that was his kind of target audience, a lot of what he worked with. Even when he, when he had his, uh, when he, at his funeral, they said most people came pushing what we would consider today like grocery carts, you know, came in park, instead of parking like carriages or any kind of thing, they, they parked their little carts of homeless materials and went to his funeral. That was kind of how they showed up there. So, um, all right. Well, we are in class three. Uh, we're ready to dive into the uh, the science. I call it the science side of uh, of the Bible. Uh, this is a part where we uh, we decipher the meaning of a particular passage, um, and so I call this the science part because this is where we're going to use uh, we're going to use tools to kind of help determine the meaning of a text. Okay, um, the art will, will come later. So everything it comes to, to to studying the Bible and and preaching the Bible, it's um, you know there's a science and an art side to it. So I mentioned last week. If uh, the science part would be, um, imagine a scuba diver, all right? You're going to get your wetsuit on, you're going to have your goggles, you're going to have some tools, you're scuba diving for pearls, right? So this science part is taking that equipment, getting down to the bottom, digging up the, the pearls. The art part is taking it back, you know, taking the pearls back, cleaning them up, shining them up, put them in a nice display case, and then try to get people to buy it, right? That's kind of the, that's the art part, that's the presentation part, that's very... While the science part is, is a lot more wooden, meaning there's a lot more uh, steps to follow that are universal, the art part is very, as it is art, very creative. <laughs> it can be, there's lots of ways to present um, in that way, but the science part is pretty literal, right? We're, we're trying to get to what does the text mean? Does it mean to me? Now, since it doesn't mean to you, I want to know what it means, and then we can talk about getting to the application part, okay? So, um, so it's important. Uh, it's a very, very essential part of it. You don't want to get it wrong. You want to get it right. What does the Bible say? 
That's the first goal we want to get to. What does it mean by what it says? Because um, I can give all the, you can have all the great homiletical skills and presentation skills in the world, uh, but if you get it wrong, that's a bad thing. Okay, this is not. We're talking about the Bible here. We're talking about God's word. We're not talking about selling cars or anything else. Like we're we're talking about presenting God's word. So we want to make sure we do that well. And we'll find that this step, okay, this step that we go through, the study, is going to yield a lot of the materials, a lot of things you use on the art side, okay, will come out of this, this piece of it as well, okay? So, uh, having said that, we'll jump in here. How do we prepare? Um, interestingly enough, someone brought this up already. Pray, <laughs> right? Uh, pray. This is the, uh, as we begin, as you open up the Bible and you begin to study it, the first thing, Again, this may be um, pretty obvious, but super important um, is to is to pray. Right? We pray to Jesus because we desire to know Him. Um, we want to love Him rightly, understand Him rightly. Uh, without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, you know, the Bible becomes you know, it's from a book form becomes white white paper, black words on white paper here, you know, or becomes a you know digital code on a screen. Like it just it doesn't come alive without the Spirit of God enlightening us to see and understand what it means. All right, and so there is this. Um, I, I actually, maybe you hear this on Sunday mornings. I pray this a lot. Um, this is uh, not unique to me. This is actually John Piper. If you ever read or listen to John Piper, he can be a little strange at times. But um, his uh, he has an acronym which makes no sense. I O U S. But um, usually they acronyms mean something. But whatever. But they, these are really helpful. I, I mean, I've memorized these, and these these are just these are just go tos for me. These are the prayers that are from Scripture. That I just, when I open up a Bible, these just come to my mind, right? Um, incline your, incline my heart, God. What does that mean? Like, God, make me want to want to <laughs> study. Make me want it. There are times where I don't want, right? Uh, so incline it. Make my heart want to. Um, we're going to open my eyes. Again, I can't see this apart from you. I'm not going to know this apart from your help. Um, open my eyes to behold, all right, what's in there. Uh, unite my heart is a great prayer too, uh, Lord. As I get down to start studying, my mind goes in 800 different directions. There's so many distractions, so many things going on. Unite my heart, make it whole, focused here, right on what I'm doing. Uh, and lastly, satisfy us. This is uh, my ultimate goal of studying Scripture. Is God, I want my soul to be filled with You, right? I want to because I'm my my presentation of this is only as powerful as it affects me too, right? It has to flow through me and not just be something that's in my brain that I've kind of come up with and present, okay? So those are kind of four um, little acronyms there that I like to um, use. Again, not unique to me, but it's helpful as I start start off. Uh, second one we have there is uh, confess. This is just simply um, asking God for uh, perseverance and humility. God, I confess that I, I, I come to the scriptures sometimes with a presupposition of I just know what it means already. Um, just a certain sense of lacking humility that I would have. And so when I come to scriptures, we want to be not just asking God for help, but God, um, help me realize that, uh, that I need you in this process, right? Um, and so, and I need the perseverance to stick with it and not quit. <laughs> so humility and perseverance are two things that I confess I need deeply um, in that way. Um, C, uh, put here is reorient. Um, Again, reorient our thinking, gain perspective of uh, what we are doing. Um, we are studying the Bible um, not to just accumulate knowledge and dump information. Okay, That's not the ultimate goal of studying the scriptures. Um, our goal is to grow in our relationship with Christ first. So you kind of like have to feed yourself before you feed others. Um, so my goal is to um, 
It's a grammar of the Lord. Personally apply it to my own life and then teach it to others. That's the process we want to go through. So we got to make sure we're, we're going to have that focus uh, in the right spot. Okay. Uh, number two, what steps does someone take to study the Bible? This has um, been out for a while. Observation, interpretation, application. These are the three we'll look at tonight, and we'll look at each one of those. Again, feel free to ask any questions as we get through those. Let me give you an overview of each of them first. Observation, this is asking the question, what do you see? What do you see? Right? Um, this is one that, this is a step that is easy to overlook. Because the second one is interpretations, what does it mean? Right? We immediately want to open up, what does it mean? <laughs> Observation is super important. And it's just, it's just asking, what do you see? And it's an easy question. And you can see so much if you just take the time to see, okay, um, what's there. And so um, one error we could say is to underread the text. We miss it because of lack of attention. We just don't read it closely enough. We just zoom through it. It may be a passage we're familiar with. Um, and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, and just right through it. Um, the opposite error is to overread the text. Um, overreading is a, a word we would, uh, two different words we use here. Don't be afraid of the words here. Um, eisegesis, exegesis. Eisegesis is the idea of to, um, the, the word is a Greek word, it means to, 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 to push in or pull, to, to push in is the idea. So I'm, I'm taking information, my preconceived ideas, and I'm coming to the scriptures with my own understanding before I get there, right? Exegesis is to take out, right? The X part, out. I'm trying to take it out. What is there? And let me take that out. Let me no, push my ideas into it. And that's good. We got to be careful. We live in a culture. Right? We have preconceived ideas that flow through our world and through our, our minds and what we've read and everything else. And it's coming to the scriptures again, okay, God, help me not to come with any preconceived ideas. Help me come with the, with the honest, kind of humble approach of like helping to see what you have to say here without my own preconceived um, ideas. Okay? So that's observation. The second one is interpretation. Again, this is asking the question, what, is it, what does the scripture mean? Okay, what does it mean? Um, this is especially, what is it, we start by asking the question, what does it mean to the original readers? Well, what are the original, the guys who first read this, when they first got this letter of 1 Corinthians, what, what, did, they, what did they see it to mean? What, was it, what did it mean to them? Um, and so this is understanding that the Bible is written to specific people in specific historical situations. That's why understanding history and background is important. That's why God gave us like the book of Acts, for example, to help us with the New Testament epistles. Like we got a little background here of what's going on and where these cities are from and there's all kinds of history we can learn from that. Um, the task is to discover the meaning instead of meaning of each text in its own terms, categories, thoughts, and forms. Uh, we begin with uh, the questions and issues the writer deals with, not with the questions we are trying to approach, okay? Um, so those are very different. I'm trying to figure out what's clicking up here. Can anybody else hear that? That's really annoying to me. That's going to drive me crazy. Sounds like it's your computer fan. I know. Oh, yeah. I'm like a... It's about to throw around. Oh. Okay. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Side tangent there for a moment. It bothered me really a lot there. So, uh, so again, we start with the issue of... Um, we don't do it with the questions we're bringing to the text. We're asking the question, what, what was the questions that they were asking? That's why 1 Corinthians is really good. Like, okay, they're definitely asking questions of Paul, and Paul's trying to answer them. Um, what were the questions they were asking? Um, you want to ask, what is the author trying to accomplish? Uh, what ideas or values is he trying to communicate? Uh, those are the things we're asking when we come to this. Now, I find that in doing the observation interpretation side of things, that it's really helpful to, uh, to write out those. 
the way I will start a lot of times is I'll go to like a um, um, uh, different websites have uh, see if I can find an idea here so if you go to where's this one so Bible Gateway is a good one I go there a lot of times and what I'll do is uh, this just gives me the, the Bible online a lot of times I'll put in the, uh, the passage and then um, I'll copy it and paste it into a Word document and then I'll just take each verse and I'll just make some space under each one so I'm creating a document with uh, with the, with it there um, and so what I'll do let's see I'll give you an example so let's see here's first Corinthians um, let's go with this one so I'll create a document so when it says notes for example so here's first Corinthians 19 notes so what I did is just my study notes right these are just a lot of things I just went through so I um, we'll talk about introduction later but I have a million I usually have like 12 different ideas of an introduction as I'm studying I'm usually like oh that's it and I'll put that there and I'll put that there and I'll put that there I'll keep adding stuff outline um then there we go here's a part that says text so i would just there's chapter 9 verse 1 and then i just put a lot of comments underneath that i observed and then there's verse verse 2 on the far left there uh here's a lot of ideas underneath that and so you can see kind of the verses i've got in different font sizes um and then i just add content underneath underneath each one so um just like this is for example is you know 16 so 16 pages on this one so it's just kind of going through and asking um these questions whoops what did i just do there did something wrong i did i just hit something and it went the wrong direction where are we at observation interpretation that's what we're at here we go i have my glasses on um so so I, I put it on the document and then it helps me to as i make observations and sometimes you can uh, it just gives me opportunity just to write i just write everything i see just everything i see um, it doesn't necessarily, and sometimes my, my observation will be wrong. Go <laughs> observe things. That's later. It's coming later. Right now, I'm just kind of gathering information. I'm just observing. What, what do I see? What does it mean? What do I understand it to mean? And I'm just kind of working, 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 right? And I'm just kind of adding, adding, adding material to it. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a growing document kind of thing, okay? Uh, yeah, go for it. Um, when you had, like, earlier in your series for First Corinthians, mm-hmm. um, when you're talking about like the people of Corinth and like they were really wicked and like where did you find all that information? So, um, so if I did, let's see. Like just like yeah, like in, and that could relate to any book of the Bible. But yeah. Like how did you get the back? Yeah. So I, it it takes me a lot of time to do um, to do background material, um, and I'll tell you some of the things. Like this one is you know this is 26 pages of notes on Acts 18. So it's just, and it's a lot of um, asking the question, um, you know, there's background and culture. I started with, like I told about today, the the uh, social and patronage system stuff I went through, uh, economic and justice and commercial stuff, city culture, cosmopolitan stuff. I mean, I, I just went through. And so what I did with those um, is, um, is I go through different, um, do, 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 do. There is, uh, commentaries is a good place to find some of that stuff. Um, there's, I've got a lot of encyclopedias um, and dictionaries in my office, so just loaded with those. I'm sure I'll, I'm, I was at that stage when I was going through seminary, like some 20, pl- 20 plus years ago, that, um, that I was on the, the edge of like the technology thing. <laughs> so I had friends that were kind of going all in on the digital side of things. I went in all in on books. And so I, I just stuck there. So I, I'm sure it's easier to find stuff online that I just don't know because I'm a little bit old school with my books. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, encyclopedias, dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, commentaries, uh, those kind of things will be helpful. Okay. 
um, to kind of help with some of that. So that, that those, and we'll look at later a little bit, some of the tools and things you can use, but th those are good ones uh, to be able to kind of look up. So, and, and you can, I'm sure you can Google, or I can look up, um, you know, ancient Corinth, because it's a city, and there's plenty of research being done about, you know, archaeology and things that they've built, they, things that they can find. You know, we talked about the Acropolis up on the hill. Um, there's pictures of it kind of crumbled down now, but they've got pictures of it. It's, it's there. Um, it shows you what it looks like from down at the city and where it was. And um, so, yeah, there's a lots of research. You can just find time online, too, yeah. by doing that. Cool. So, mm -hmm. What do you mean by um, necessarily, like, observations? Like, what do you mean by that? Like, you're just kind of like, Paul is talking. Yeah, Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to that. We're, just, we're overviewing. I'm okay, gonna, be my next, no, it's okay. I'm going to get there. I am. I just want to kind of fly over them real quick. So ob observation, interpretation, application. Application is a question of um, how does this passage apply to original readers, um, as well as how does this apply to my life, as well as how does this apply to my audience. Okay, so notice there's like three levels of application I'm looking at here. How does this passage apply to the original readers? What was the, what was the author going for? Um, secondly, how does this apply to me? Okay, I, I want to apply it to me secondly. And then thirdly, now how does this apply to my audience? Right, so I'm kind of going through three steps of application. It's not just, you don't want to just get to, if you're presenting, you're teaching, you don't want to just go like, okay, how does this apply to them? You, you've gone to step three before, there's two others before that. I want to know what it, how it applied to the readers. Um, you know, taking Corinth, for example, like how does it apply to the people of Corinth? How does it apply to their life? What did it look like for them? Because that helps me. It's like, okay, I understand the whole meat offered to idols thing we talked about. And, you know, that's a really bizarre kind of, like, well, I don't know what that means because I don't live where there's meat offered to idols. What was it talking about? Well, once we understand what it meant for them and how it applied to them, we can go, oh, okay, this is how it applies to me and this is how it applies to the, my audience, right? All right, so let's look at the practice of observation, all right? Practice of observation. Um, so uh, this one, again, is going to take time and patience on this one. This is one that you just want to kind of jump, jump out of as observation. You want to stick with it. Uh, don't be too fast on it. Um, you know, again, research, uh, examine, inspect, ask questions. Um, if you fail to do good observations, it'll usually lead to a faulty interpretation, okay? So you need to ask the, the right questions, good questions for that, okay? Uh, put yourself kind of in the place of the original readers. Uh, don't skim over that, okay? So a uh, couple ideas. One is, this is pretty simple. Again, start with the basis. Read. <laughs> read the text. That's important if you're going to know what it means. Read it. Um, when you read, let me give you a couple of uh, things here. Read the text slowly. Um, Read text out loud. I find that really helpful. Uh, sometimes if you have an audio version of it, you can just hear it played. Like if you have to commute or drive somewhere and you're studying a passage, just put it on repeat. You can get the Bible app. You know, the, the, that has got good audio on it. Just record it and hit it and hit repeat. It'll just keep reading it to you over and over and over again. Uh, read out loud. Again, read, read repeatedly as uh, another one. Um, read with uh, emotion, passion, inflection, those kind of things as you read. Um, kind of understanding, trying to, what is it like? What's the author trying to communicate here? What would have been maybe the tone in which he was communicating based on the context of what was happening there? Um, and lastly, kind of read through the entire book if possible. There is a, um, there's a book by a guy named James Gray. He used to be a president of uh, Moody Bible Institute uh, about 100 years ago. He wrote a book called How to Master Your English Bible. Not a profound book at all. There's one application point, which I'm surprised it even is a book because it's like that then. Um, and his, his, his objective basically was like, I'm going to take a book of the Bible, say, if I'm going to study Ephesians, I'm going to take Ephesians, and I'm going to read through Ephesians every day. Just keep reading Ephesians. Every, for all, all month long, I'm just reading it, that same book, over and over and over and over. I'm not stopping to 
ask a lot of questions yet. I'm just going to just keep reading it for a while until like basically gets into my head, right? Um, that method is important because when it comes to, as we'll talk about in a minute, observation, interpretation, application, context is always king, okay? I want to know what's, what went on before, what's coming up afterwards, and if I keep reading, I'll know those things, right? So it helps me in understanding um, what is there, okay? Um, as you read, um, record your observations. I said this before, um, notebooks can work, uh, tablets, computers, uh, any of those. Uh, Bible.com allows you to use some highlighting. You can store your highlights in there too. As if you want to do it digitally, you can always do that. If you got yourself an Apple Pencil or something, you can do all kinds of cool highlighting stuff on there too. Um, connect your thoughts uh, uh, and underline and circle. So you've been doing with the papers I gave you, the sermons. Like, Don't be afraid to do that in your Bible or especially a digital, digital format you can. That's why I say I like to copy and paste mine into a Word document. Then I can start you know, cutting it up and highlighting and making all kinds of statements on there. Uh, trace uh, the, the flow of logic and the train of thought. Um, say to your, you know, to yourself as you're studying, don't be afraid of this. My, some of the pastors think I'm crazy sometimes. They're hearing me in the office and I'm talking out loud to myself. <laughs> so um, asking yourself questions uh, or even saying things like, oh, okay, Lord, I believe this is what you're saying, right? So I mean, got to have conversations as we're, it's one-way conversation, by the way. It's not coming back to me, but um, just so you know. But you know, but I, but I am. I'm going like I think is what is this what you're trying to say? Like, and I'm mean, just just put it out there, right? I'm just saying it, trying to understand it, saying it out loud. I'm, I think this is the flow of what of what is going on there. Um, relate each passage to its surrounding paragraphs. Um, you know, so God, what you're saying here is uh, is compared to what you said before. So this is where this is going, I believe, right? So I'm having these conversations and talking. Um, in those ways. Uh, and then summarize the main idea of each paragraph uh, in your own words. Okay, That's a good, good method to do, is once you think you've got an understanding of a paragraph or even a sentence, don't be afraid to put it in your own words. It's not sacrilegious. Okay? You're just trying to understand it. Just be like, okay, I think this is what's, what it's saying. And put it into your own, own words. Ask questions. Be interested in the text. Be interested in it. There is so much to learn. The depth of God's word is, is limitless, or you just keep digging. And there's all kinds of things you can you can begin to do. Let me give you some ideas. So, a um, couple of questions I'm going to ask. Who's the author? Okay, it seems pretty obvious, but I want to know who's the author, right? What's going on here? Who's talking? Um, what book am I in? Who's the author of this book kind of thing? Um, who's the author talking to? Right? Who are the recipients? It's again, going into, I want to understand a little bit about people of Corinth or Ephesus or wherever else. Um, who are the main characters of the text, right? Who, who is this, who's the story about? If I'm reading a, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, kind of different parts of the Bible has different, we call genres. Okay, we'll talk about that too. Um, who are the main characters in this story? Like, not, not the side ones, but the main ones. What's going on with that? Um, who's the author talking about? What is the subject um, of the text, right? What's happening? So, for example, if I'm in um, a, a famous uh, kind of story in the Gospel of Luke, uh, is the prodigal, you know, son's story. A lot of people know that story, Luke 15. What they normally don't get is if you read Luke 15, the first verse, it tells you that Jesus is teaching the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he gave this story for them. So it was, the story is actually about the older son, not the younger, right? Because they represent the older son in the story. So really the older, story, the older son is really the main character, not the younger. <laughs> but we, we, just, you know, we immediately just think, oh, it's all about this prodigal son. It's like, well, it was never called prodigal son's story, first of all. It was a, it, Jesus said a story of two sons. <laughs> That's all he said. 
And the audience, the target audience for Jesus was the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, which is the older son. Okay, But, but you've got to go back and see who is he talking to, right? That helps me understand the point of the story and, uh, and what he's trying to achieve there. Um, what happens uh, in the text? Again, put it into your own words. What happens in the text? What's going on there? Um, what words or phrases are repeated? Um, again, they, these I say this in sermons a lot. You hear me say this, like, hey, notice this word. It's been repeated. It says it over and over again. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, we talked about verses 17 to 24. Paul keeps using the word stay. Stay, 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 stay. You stay where you are. It's an important word. Um, Genesis, right? Chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2. Good, 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 good. Not good. You're like, hold on. Like, well, what's not good? Everything's good. Why is it not good? Well, it's not good that Adam's alone, right? Well, that's a, that should be signal flares going off. Like, everything's been good. Sin's not in the world yet, so why is something not good? But you pick that up because it's, the word's been used over and over and over again. Remember, end of every day, it was good. It was good. So you're looking for this... Um, uh, what words are kind of being repeated? That really helps give you a, a key idea of what is what is happening uh, in a specific text. This is one I use a lot too, and I'll tell you, uh, I'll say this a lot when I preach. What does the author not say? It's just, it's just a good question to ask. What's he not say? What did I expect him to say? But he didn't say it the way I thought he would say it. He said this instead. All right. Um, so I'm always asking a question. What does it not say? Right. What does it What does it not say? Um, you know, Jesus is arrested in the garden, and, um, you know, he's taken to trial, and Peter fails him. Peter denies him three times, that whole thing. To me, I look at that and go, like, what does it not say? Jesus, it says he made eye contact with Jesus. Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus didn't throw him out. Jesus didn't leave him. Actually, Jesus stayed with him in many ways, even though Peter abandoned him. You know, what does it not say? Doesn't say the things that I would do if I was Jesus. I would probably yell at him from across the way. Be like, how dare you? You know what I mean? There's all kinds of things I would do. That's why I'm asking the question. Was it? What did he not do? That's very interesting. That's very unique, and it helps bring out the text um, in that way too. And that helps too, as you use that kind of method. It helps people kind of. That kind of humanizes the passage a little bit too, right? It helps people go like, "Yeah, I probably would have done that too, but he didn't do that, right?" Um, so, what does it not say is a is a huge uh, part of that. Uh, when do the events uh, in the text occur? Uh, when do they occur? So. For example, if I'm reading 1 Peter, that's important for me to understand 1 Peter that, that this is right around the time of, if not right before, a guy named Nero came into power. And I studied Nero as a Roman, you know, kind of a leader, and he was a bad dude. I mean, he was sewing up, you know, Christians in, in animal skins and throwing them for dogs to eat, right? Wild animals. He was putting them up on posts and covering them and, um, you know, lighting them on fire to be, you know, lanterns for his garden parties he had with his friends over. His Christians are burning up on stakes. I mean, it was ridiculous. So when you go read First Peter and he says, honor the king, you're like, whoa, hold on a second. Do you, do you know what king he's talking about? <laughs> like, honor that guy? Um, that helps, again, it helps me understand. That is going to help me make that point so much more important than saying honor the king means, okay, I need to respect the president of the United States. <clears throat> okay, that's a good application let's really get the weight of what he's saying. And then we go and say, you can have your disagreements with the president of the United States, but I can tell you what, it's not as bad as Nero. <laughs> right? So, I mean, you're, it kind of gives perspective, but you have to ask the questions to be able to get to that point. Okay? Um, where is the activity or discussion taking place? Location. Uh, for example, um, one of those <laughs> favorite ones is uh, Jonah chapter 2. It's a prayer of Jonah. It's a great prayer. Where is it taking place? 
inside the fish, okay? It's like, okay, that's a that's fascinating to think about. Okay, now I'm trying to imagine myself. I'm going to read these words a little differently now. Let me read this prayer of Jonah and go like, okay, he's inside of a fish as he makes these prayers. As he says this, this helps give me a little bit perspective on what he's feeling, saying, right? What's coming across? Why does he say this? Um, totally different than sitting at home in a, you know, beside the fireplace with a cup of coffee. I mean, he's inside the belly of a fish. Um, another one is, uh, where was the letter written from? Uh, sometimes we call uh, some of Paul's epistles, we call them prison epistles, right? Uh, we call them prison epistles, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, these books, because they were written from prison. Okay, well, Paul's writing from prison. Uh, Philippians, for example, he's writing from prison. What was Roman prison like? Okay, I'm going to look up my encyclopedia, my dictionary, I'm going to look it up online. What was Roman prisons like in the first century? Ooh, they were bad. You know, it was like sewage and rats and, you know, no one was, there was no, like, go get your, you know, some, some exercise in or watch some TV. Like, <laughs> very different prison situation than modern day America. Um, and so I go like, okay, that gives you, he's in, he's in that. Let me, now let me read, let me read Philippians again. Wow, he talks about rejoicing a lot. Okay, that's convicting in and of itself, but for him to say rejoice and he's where he's at, that gives a whole different perspective on, well, if he can rejoice in that, then, you see? So again, understanding where it's, where it's coming from, where it's written from, gives more depth um, to the text. Um, asking uh, questions, um, uh, who, what, when, where, and how. Um, I'm trying to figure out where that came from. I think I messed up a second ago. Hold on a second. That's not what I thought was coming next. So it, is, it is what's coming up next. Okay, my bad. It's just working its way through your list. I just can't tell you how much this, this broken fan on my computer is making me really annoyed right now. Give it some air. No, it's still doing it. <laughs> it may go kaboomy in a minute, and that's okay. Um, we'll just stick with it. Um, the angle. Yeah, it's not the computer's fault. See, I told this earlier. It's, not, it's never the Apple fault. No, it's, it's never Apple's fault. That's what I was saying. I mean, that's, that's it's not a PC. Let's not get into that right now. Because, I mean, don't even get me started. I'm like, I like, I'm like the Apple cult member here. I mean, I've got Apple everything. Um, it was the angle. I mentioned this earlier. I don't like this like angled. Yeah, it actually goes flat. It goes flat. So. Um, Um, so, why was this text written? Back to our point here. Why was it written? Okay. Um, so, I think, uh, for example, Galatians. All right. So, why was, it, why was Galatians written? Well, I can read the text. It's our understanding that he was definitely, something was going on there. Like, they, they were going AWOL. They were trying to go back to, like, Jewish, you know, laws. And they're, they're getting sucked in by these guys called Judaizers. Well, who, who are those guys? Right? I didn't know who they are. So that's going to help me understand why he's writing the letter. You know, what, what are they trying to accomplish? Who are these people? Um, all of that kind of helps me understand that too. Um, why did the individuals do what they did? You know, uh, Galatians, uh, second with Galatians, Galatians two ten. Um, the the kind of the church council back in Jerusalem told Paul when he went out on his missionary journeys, he says to go to preach the gospel and to remember the poor, which he said I do. And you're like, well, why? Why did they say that? Like, why was that important? Well, I started understanding, like, the background of where he's going to, and it was like, well, there was famine in the land at the time. I know that from Acts, because it says there was no food, it was famine. Um, kind of started understanding, like, the church was starting to get scattered, and they were getting persecuted, and it was, a lot of them were poor by that time, right? And so, 
it helps me understand the uh, what was going on there. It helps me uh, there. So how how will it happen? This is kind of one of those prophetic uh, books. A lot of times, um, you know, how, what's going to go on? What's going to happen? What does this tell me about what's what's going to be taking place into the future? Uh, and then how does this passage point to Jesus? We'll we'll get to this a lot a little bit later. But this is a super super important point. Um, I, I I fail my study of the Bible and I fail my presentation of Scripture if I don't get to Jesus if I don't explain uh, who he is and how this text points to him ultimately. And again, we'll talk a little bit about that here in a little bit. All right. Um, Sticking with the observation here. So we're analyzing uh, the text. We're looking for clues uh, that may appear. Let me give you a couple of clues, a couple of things that that, that stick out um, in, uh, whoops, come back there. Where are you at? There you are. Uh, Repetition, repetition of words. We've mentioned that before. Um, I think, do I have 2 Corinthians in your notes there? Yeah. Okay. So second, I think they have it on the screen, actually. Yeah, I do. So if you look at this one, without having to read the whole thing, um, you'll notice that, um, for example, let's go here. Uh, Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us with our affliction, that we may also be able to comfort those who are in the affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comfort. Okay, we're starting to get the idea, right? Yeah. So clearly... That's a theme, okay? That's a, that just pops off the pages to me as I see it. I'm like, all right, there's a word that's been repeated, what, six times in two verses? Like, okay, this is definitely, comfort is a theme, and I'm asking the question, okay, why? Why do they need to be comforted? What's going on with these guys? Like, what's happening? Um, is there something else in the letter that helps me understand why they needed comfort uh, in that way? So these are all kind of ways to get these, seeing words are repeated so that's good, good to have printed out, circle it up, write, write, write on it, um, is helpful. So another one here, John 1, we find uh, some, some words that keep uh, popping up here. We find that um, uh, he's a son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we find that. We come down here from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. Uh, the law was to give to Moses grace and truth through, through Jesus Christ. We find grace, grace and truth, grace and truth. Right? Those words keep popping up. Um, that could, that could, especially in the beginning of a book. So we're in John one, that could tell me that the writer is maybe that may be his theme, right? That may be what he's going after. Um, if if it, right at the beginning of a book, words are repeated a lot. That may tell me that an indicator. And it's not guaranteed, but it may be an indicator that this is kind of what he's going for. I'm gonna see a lot of this coming up in this book, so I'm looking for that. Okay. Uh, contrasts is another kind of form that we kind of look for here. Uh, I gave you there, you know, Proverbs 31, whoever presses a poor man insults his maker. Okay, so a poor man, you insult him, you're going to insult God. But he was generous to the needy, honors him, speaking of the maker, right? They go together as a contrast, um, oppressing versus being generous in that way. Uh, Romans 6.23 is a, a famous verse, the wages of sin is death. Contrast to that, free gift of God's eternal life. Right, so there's a contrast um, going in that way. Sometimes there's comparisons done. Um, this is a lot in, in the wisdom literature, like Proverbs, for example. Uh, Proverbs 25, 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Right? It's a comparison. Almost uh, word pictures, as you see there. Uh, same with uh, Proverbs 25, uh, just the next verse. Like a muddied spring or polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives away before the wicked, right? It's a, it's a comparison to those two, making a point. Um, another one that you want to take note of, if you ever see lists of things, those are things we want to be like, okay, so this is uh, um, something that's important here. So we have Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. There's my main part. 
is, okay, here's my list, love, joy, peace, patience. Okay, these are all important features of, of what that is. To give you another one, um, Proverbs 6, 16. Uh, this is uh, six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him. Um, if you'll notice this, I'll show you a little something. This is a little bit of a insider information. Um, it's a Hebrew word called a chiasm. A chiasm is, uh, is going to be basically you're looking for a list. Hebrews like, the Hebrew writers, Jewish writers like to use chiasm as a structure to make a point. And their point a lot of times is if they have a list of odd numbers like seven or nine, they'll use the first and last one, the parallel, second, second and last one parallels, and they keep going to that one middle one. All right, so let me show you. I'll give you an example. So this is, these are things the Lord hates, right? Here they are. They're all listed there. So here you have, um, there you have haughty eyes at the first of the list. The last thing among the bottom here is you spread strife. Among brothers, again, pride, strife, going together. The next two, pretty clear. Oops, didn't mean to do that. Where's that? There it is. Lying tongue and false witness who utters lies, right? Those go together. Uh, you have your next one here. Um, you got hands and you got feet. Okay, those are two parallel ideas to that. That leads me right in the middle of what, what, what the Lord hates. A heart that advises wicked plans. What well, starts making sense? Okay, there's the one that's all by itself. It's right sandwiched right in the middle. Everything kind of points to that. I mean, in everything else, all these other things come from here, right? This is where they come from. They come from a heart. That's the problem, right? I mean, God hates these activities, but that is the reason. That's the really the heart, well, literally, the heart of it, right, um, is right there. So it's chiasm. So if you ever see a list and you see odd numbers, ooh, what's in the middle of that sandwich, right? Do the outsides parallel each other, like work their way in? Jewish writers like to do that when you find um, a list of things, just kind of a small little point there when you come to lists uh cause and effect um you know romans 12 2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind right so um cause and effect the result would be you'll discern what is the will of god right as a result of that uh galatians 6 7 god is not mocked what you sow you reap cause effect cause effect Another one we're looking for when we're making observations is uh, figures of speech. Um, you know, Jesus liked using this a lot. Matthew 23, 27, he calls them um, whitewashed tombs full of dead people's bones, right? So, okay, that's, uh, that's pretty graphic. Um, that's a, a figure of speech there. Uh, you'll find this a lot in Jesus' parables, right? Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like. Here it is, he talks about a treasure hidden in the field. After that verse, he talks about a pearl of great price. Um, one note on those, by the way, and we'll come back to these a little bit later, but parables, they have one point. Always remember that. A parable has a one point. People get in all kinds of crazy ideas when they start trying to pull out every little detail of a parable. Jesus told a parable to communicate one point. Okay? So if you dig in here and go like, well, the, the, the field actually means this, and then you know him selling, well, that actually means this, and buying, that means, you're like, well, hold on. No, he, he's not diving into those details. His whole point is that there's a treasure and in the field. Okay, that's his big point. Um, don't, don't lose that. One point for a parable, not all these trying to find hidden meanings into all the extra things he was saying. Okay, the parables have one point. Don't read too much into them. Uh, conjunctions are really important. I know we're doing some English grammar here and you love this. Uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of like, kind of like that always, I was always told this, it's kind of cheesy, but it works. You know, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay. <laughs> what's the therefore, therefore? What's going on? Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, 
But what's the therefore therefore? You tell me. What's the, you're familiar with Hebrews 11? What's in Hebrews 11? The great cloud of witnesses, right? They're in chapter 11. Okay, so that's going to help me understand this verse. I've got to go back and see who those cloud of witnesses are, right? That's what the therefore mm-hmm. is there for. There we go. Another one, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. All right. What's Romans 1 through 11 about? Mercies of God. That's what Romans 1 through 11 is about. So if I'm going to understand the appeal here, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, why, why should I present my body as a living sacrifice? One view of God's mercies. What are those? Go back and read chapters 1 through 11. All right, so I'll understand what that means. So those conjunctions, those therefores especially, are really important. They're, they're, they're an arrow pointing backwards, going, okay, what happened before this? Because he's built to this point. It's especially important if you're going to jump into the middle of a passage, somewhere in the middle of a Bible, you know, or middle of a book, sorry. Um, you're not starting from the beginning, you just jump it in. You always want to make note of these kind of things, because there's something he said before that's going to help understand here. Okay? So, as you look at, uh, so here's one. So First John 5... Sorry, first John 1, 5 through 7. What do you see? What are the things you see? Just look up there. There's no right or wrong answer. We're observing. Practice. What are some things you notice? God is light. Okay. Contrasted right. with darkness. All right. You see, yeah, you see light here. There's light here. There's light here. Okay. So that's a repeated word. Okay. It's important. What did you mention, Austin? That's uh, contrasted with darkness. Yes. Yeah, so there's light <clears throat> versus darkness. There's a contrast happening there. It's an important part. That darkness aspect repeats itself too. There's a message that's already been communicated. Okay. This is the message we have heard. Okay. So there's something. What is that he heard before? Okay. What is the message that he heard? What else do you see? Cause and effect. If we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness. We lie and don't practice truth. Okay. And then the opposite of that, if we walk, we have fellowship. All right. What else you see? Random question. I, I was just reading that when it says we lie, I assume it meant we were not telling the truth. Okay. But also, kind of like when you read it, is it like lying down? No, I think it's I think it's contrasted with truth. Therefore, it should be okay. Now, lie, lies in like, speaking. Yes, that's. Uh, yep. Well, it all points to Jesus. Okay, yeah. The light, the light, the light, the light, the light. He himself is in the light, and then it points, you know, to the blood of Jesus right. who cleanses us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is and these are this is where you kind of get into some of the what's it not say stuff, or why does he say this, right? So my questions I would go here is like, why does he refer to God as light? <clears throat> like why? I mean, it's all, you could. God, there's all kinds of descriptions for God. Why does he choose light? Like, I want to know that answer. Like, why does he say light? You know, um, I'm going to look at some interesting words in this and be like, okay, what's it, what's it say with fellowship with him? Okay, that's a, that's a very churchy word, okay? It's not a word we use a lot in outside in the world. Like, what does that mean to have fellowship with him? What's that word mean? Right, I'm going to look up that word. I want you to understand what that word means a little bit more. Um, you know, also you brought up like he says we lie. Well, why? Why is that? You know, why does he say we're? Why, why are we lying? <laughs> like, what does that mean? What What were we saying that's not true? Um, 
just a lot, I'm just going to, I mean, it's just tons of questions. You can, if you just take time and look, you'll have lots of things you can ask, a lot of things you can look at. Um, so, all right, so you kind of get the idea. There's lots of, lots of things, lots of things you can look for. Um, another one, determine the, we're doing English class here, literary genre, okay? Uh, the reason we bring this up is because, again, the Bible, we talked about this before, right? The word Bible means what? Book. It's a holy book, but it is a book, okay? So you have to approach it like a book. God gave us a book. Um, so try not to uh, over-spiritualize it and make it kind of like where there's hidden meanings and secrets and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it's a book. It's a, it's a piece of literature. Um, God gave us, gave, us, gave us to it that way, so we understand it that way. And within the book, though there's one book, there's 66 books, right? And some of those books are... We call different styles, different uh, types. And there's four of them. I'll give you four. Then you can maybe break these out to be a little bit more, but I'll just give you four of them. And they're all unique. And this is important because people misunderstand the Bible, misinterpret the Bible, if they don't understand what part of literature it's coming from. Okay? So, uh, first one is uh, narrative. Uh, these are texts that, um, why, it's important, why is it important to understand narrative portions? These are texts that communicate by telling a story. Okay? a lot of stories in the Bible, okay, especially the Old Testament, lots of stories in there. Okay, so it's communicating the story, communicates truth indirectly to the reader, so we need to understand the difference between what's called descriptive and prescriptive passages. Okay, um, Descriptive is typically describing what took place, not necessarily prescribing what to do, So what I mean by that. So it's just describing. Story is just describing. The Bible is just saying, hey, hey, here's what happened. Because something happened, that doesn't mean it's a prescription for me to do it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So we got to be careful with that. A lot of people are like, Jesus walked on water, therefore I should walk on water. No, no, that was just tell us what happened. It's not prescribing that I do so, right? Um, you'll see this a lot of people. They'll read something in the Old Testament or read somewhere else and be like, wait, you know, they did it, therefore I should do it. Mm-hmm. Like, eh. You know, I mean, it, you, you, it's not a prescriptive passage. It's a descriptive. That's what narrative is. It's just describing, just giving us facts of what occurred with probably an overall point that's trying to be communicated there, but it is just simply describing. Uh, This includes things like parables, biographies, genealogies, uh, other stories um, throughout the Bible. So we find Genesis, Samuel's, uh, Matthew, Gospel. These are, all these would be considered narrative kind of passages. They're describing events uh, that took place. A lot of the Bible is descriptive. All right. Another one is poetry. Probably not hard to guess which books those are. Uh, why is it important to know poetry? This is, uh, these, texts are, uh, these are texts in which language is used to create intellectual, emotional, and spiritual responses uh, through meaning, uh, sound, and rhythm. So they use uh, imagery and symbols to convey meaning. Uh, Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful one with, without discretion. Like, that's a... It's a graphic picture. All right, I got you. I see what you're getting at here. Um, it's not appealing. All right, got it. Um, or it's pointless, right? I guess is what it is. Um, communicates truth in word pictures. Jesus loved to use kind of poetry this kind of way, right? He did a lot of word pictures. Um, you'll see him use those quite a lot. Uh, Matthew, Matthew 7, 6, he talks about a pig and a dog and a pearl and like all these. It's just very graphic kind of imagery um, that he would use, okay? Expresses emotions um, and feelings. Again, the Psalms are full of this. Uh, found primarily uh, a lot of that's found a lot in the Old Testament. So, it's poetry. It's trying to convey something. So, 
that's important that we don't derive direct implications of that. All right? Poetry is not meant to be a direct correlation. So if it talks about in the Psalms that you know, the trees were clapping their hands, you're like, well, the trees don't literally have hands. And they weren't clapping, but I know what it was trying to convey is that creation was rejoicing in that way, right? So it's poetry. You've got to take it from that angle um, as well. Uh, next section is what uh, we call teaching portions of Scripture. Uh, these are texts that communicate. Uh, these are the kinds of ones we like in the Western world a lot. Logical sequence of ideas. Um, this is that didactic kind of portion, you know, kind of uh, straightforward stuff. Do this, don't do that, Okay. Teachers' commands, specific instructions. You know, First Corinthians says, flee sexual morality. All right, that's pretty straightforward. I need to run. Okay, that's like, okay, it's right, it's right there. Uh, communication directly to the reader, right? Uh, Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Yeah, that's, a, that's a very clear, direct uh, command. Um, again, it's prescriptive instead of descriptive. It's not just telling us, it's not an option for us, okay? When it says, flee sexual morality, it's like, well, it's just, you know, it's just a story. It's like, no, it's not a story. <laughs> it's a command. It's very straightforward. We need to obey that, okay? That's what it's saying. Um, includes arguments, letters, sermons, speeches. Again, you find this, like, in places like Romans or Hebrews or First Peter would be good, good portions of that. The last little segment that we'll find uh, of, of genre of Scripture is uh, prophetic. Uh, these are texts that give uh, declarations of God's will and purposes, mostly for the future. Okay, so this is going to be the uh, apocalyptic type. Sometimes it's called apocalyptic literature. Uh, communicates previously unknown truths. We didn't really know. Um, symbolic language. Uh, events to reveal truth uh, in that way. A lot of looks and beholds in these portions of Scripture. You know, Behold this and behold that. Uh, final 17 books of the Old Testament, final book of the New Testament, those are primarily where you'll find a lot of prophetic. Now, there are places in the Gospels, you know, Jesus, um, um, you know, in Matthew, uh, what am I looking at here, 24, 25, um, these, these uh, kind of areas you'll find a lot of futurist, future-pointed kind of prophetic kind of things going on there too, okay? So, to avoid error, it's important that we are aware when you're studying a book, what kind of genre is this? Okay, it's important to understand what, where they're coming from. Um, I'll give you some examples. So, Mormons, um, for example, will read poetic literature and come up with all kinds of errors when it comes to who Jesus is and all kinds of stuff. I had a conversation one time with one of them because he was reading Proverbs eight, and when Proverbs eight talks about wisdom, and wisdom was there when God created the world, right? And wisdom, you know, wisdom was a created thing. And they make the parallel be that well, that's speaking of Jesus. That's who Jesus. He's created. Like God created him. He's just a. He's there to do God's work, and he's just a created being. And I'm like, it says it's a wisdom. It's wisdom literature here, man. This is not. It's not making a direct parallel to the person work of Christ to that, right? So you got to be careful. What am I? What am I in here? This is poetry. Um, not deriving my theology from a poetic section um, like that. So, so just understanding where, what we're into, uh, what section we're in will be good. Okay. Question. Yeah, I'd say ninety percent of the time that should be pretty clear. But yes. In the cases where it's not, how do you, I guess, confirm that you've got that right? That you've got the right genre. Well, I'm, I'm just some of it's common sense. Yeah. Right. I'm gonna be looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain things that, um, you know, it, when there's direct commands, uh, I can, I can. But even when there's direct command, there's direct commands in the Book of Deuteronomy. There's a lot of direct commands. Mm-hmm. But based on the context of where it's at, based on studying Romans and Galatians, I know that the Mosaic law is not, 
you know, I can eat shrimp. It is okay. Mm -hmm. It's shellfish. I can have it. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not against that. Um, so I need to be careful even then because it's, it's very descriptive. I'm sorry, very prescriptive. But it's, it's an old covenant in that sense. So it, the, the direct application is not to me, but the, the overall application of the law is still there. Yeah, that, I, I had a friend recently looking into like the Hebrew festivals and what, what do you, I don't know what you call those, but like the feasts Peace. and all that. Yep. And she was like, well, it says here in the Bible like that the Lord commands them to do it to the end of the days. Mm -hmm. and, the, and so she, she was asking me like, well, what does that mean for us? And I kind of took it as like, well, that was your covenant. And now mm -hmm. we have Jesus. Right. So we don't have to follow all those like religious ceremonies. And, right. Right? Yeah, and that's where like a book like Hebrews was is helpful because it will that's tell right, us yeah. that Jesus fulfilled these these law he fulfilled these laws, he fulfilled these roles, like the priesthood was fulfilled by Christ, like all these things were they, they are a shadow he'll speak of there in the book of Hebrews. Because right? like she came back with saying like, Well Jesus didn't come to like abolish, abolish the law but to fulfill it. it. Like, Which is we did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we're not held under all that like rule and regulation anymore. Right, but at the same time we don't it doesn't mean we gotta take it and go rip right. it out, it means nothing. Um, it's still there, as Second Timothy 3 would tell us, that it's still profitable for us. And so, um, without getting into a long detail about that one, I mean, we come to the Old Testament law. Again, Romans and Galatians will tell us we're under law, we're under grace, mm -hmm. and that we're under the law of Christ, which 1 Corinthians 7 brings up, uh, 1 Corinthians, sorry, uh, chapter 9 brings up um, next week. We're under the law of Christ, Paul would say. Uh, um, he says, to those under the law, I became as those under the law. To those not under the law, I, came, I became as one un not under the law, but not outside the law of Christ, he said. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that was uh, basically saying, like, look, I still, I still follow the overall law of God, which is love God, love your neighbor. Okay? That's the, that's the law of God. That's in its totality. Old Testament, New Testament, anytime. That's what it means. Now, what does it mean to love God and love your neighbor specifically within a context? Okay, to be an ancient Israel nation, here's what it looks like to be love God, love your neighbor specifically. New Testament, here's what it's like to love, love God and love your neighbor specifically. Um, you'll find a lot of parallels sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Things like do not murder still apply. <laughs> still, you see those repeated because that's always loving your neighbors, not to kill them, right? So that's pretty parallel. But when it comes to things like you know festivals or certain things they had to wear or things like that, that was very specific to that nation mm -hmm. to love God as a as a as, as uh, Exodus nineteen would tell us as a, they were supposed to be a light to the nation, a kingdom priest and a holy nation to the other nations, and God set them apart differently. So, but the principles are still there. So it says things like Deuteronomy twenty four. I think it speaks about the ox. You know, if it's stuck in the ditch, you know, of your neighbor, pull it out. You know, and help. You know, it's like okay, but. It's not a direct application to me right now, but I get the principle, right? The principle is still there. It's a, that was how you loved your neighbor in a very agrarian society, specifically their nation. You know, leave the edges of your fields. Let the poor come eat those was a command. What does it mean if I own a farm, I got to leave the edges and tell everybody to come eat them if they want? The point, the point is still there though, right? Okay, that was loving the poor. I was taking care of somebody. who I still need to do that today. What does that look like for me, right? So see, the, the principles are still there. That was just very specific application of the law of God, which is love, love God, love your neighbor, to Israel, love God, love your neighbor, to the church. So, there you go. That makes sense. All right. <laughs> um, how do we practice this? All right. Um, so, uh, the practice of, of interpretation follows the practice of observation. Uh, we move from uh, what we see um, to what is the meaning. And so, the key principle here, let's see, is to remember is there is only one interpretation of every passage, but there can be many applications. Okay, I'll say that again. There is one interpretation, 
But there can be many applications to a passage of Scripture. In other words, there's only one meaning here. There's not three meanings, and I get to choose which meaning I want to choose. Okay? The meanings, there's one meaning that God's communicating, one, one truth, but there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ways that you can apply that truth. Okay? Um, so in looking at how to interpret the Bible, must consider the context, again, the grammar, the culture, the history. Um, again, don't overlook the, the basics, which is seeking kind of the normal understanding. It's a book. It's literature. Um, it's still a piece of literature. People miss the meaning of the text when they try to dig in and try to find hidden, unique you know, meanings. One of the things I always want to say, if you're studying the Bible and you come out of a passage and you read it and you come up with an interpretation, this is what it means. And then you go talk to people and be like, I never saw that. No one's ever, no one's ever seen this before. And then you read commentaries and no one's ever seen this before. Odds are you're probably wrong. Just going to be honest with you, okay? If for 2,000 years no one's seen that meaning and all of a sudden you found it, eh, I'd be a, little, be a little hesitant on that one, okay? Um, so, so just remember that. <coughs> um, so as we're going into interpretation, uh, we're trying to find the meaning of the passage uh, and what's going on there, okay? Um, so, so we seek to interpret the text. We're asking the question, what does God intend to communicate through the text? We must practice good hermeneutics. There's another word that's unique to uh, this area of work. Um, hermeneutics is the study of correct methods of interpretation. It's the science of interpreting what an author has written, right? So this is, again, hermeneutics are those tools. I'm digging down as a diver, and I'm, i got the tools in my hand. I'm digging the pearls up, and I'm opening them up. That's all the tools I'm using. That's what hermeneutics is. It's the tools. So what are some principles um, of interpretation? Okay, let's give a few of these. I'm going to go through some of these a little quick because we kind of repeating some of them from observation. But uh, the praying principle, again, this is uh, praying is not something we, we, uh, we, only, we only do just before we study the Bible. It's something we continue to do. So it's not just like, okay, God, I said my prayer, now let me get to it. It's a continuation. So even when I'm trying to interpret, I'm asking, God, what, is, what do you mean by this? What is, what, is, what is Paul trying to say here? <laughs> what, is, what is being communicated by Moses? Why did he do this, Lord? Like, I'm just having this ongoing, that's what I love about studying the Bible. It's just like an ongoing conversation with God the entire way through. Um, and so it's still a very important aspect to that. Okay. Um, another one, I call it the contemplative principle. Um, this is the practice that we'll call solitude and silence. Um, this is... Solitude is the attempt to free myself from the distractions around me, situations, maybe people and situations. I need to find some, some, some space there. Um, it's scheduling an uninterrupted time. You're going to study the Bible, try to find some space, carve out some time where you can be as best as possible uninterrupted, right? If you can turn the phone off, turn the phone off kind of thing, right? Just have some time, you know, uh, where you can do that. Um, We'll find a lot of times in the Gospels, Jesus, for example, would go away, right? In the middle of the night, he'd go up and pray by himself. He had that kind of practice of just kind of solitude in that way. Silence, on the other hand, is free myself from the distractions of noise um, in many ways. Um, we're addicted to noise as a culture. Um, I mean, I know I, I can't even sleep without noise. Like, honestly, if it's completely silent, I freak out. Like, I need... I, I've been in the city for so long that even living here was like, it's, it's creepy. It's so quiet around here. Um, it is. It's bizarre. Um, I'm used to helicopters and fire engines and people with Tourette's outside my window or something, like yelling all kinds of interesting words. Um, so I sleep with a fan on, and I got a, got a thing running, like, really loud, right? But we, we like, we're kind of addicted to noise. But this is a silence. It's still in all the, even still in all the internal noise for a minute, Right? Cutting off all of the, the things that are going on around me, 
Uh, even all the internal oughts and shoulds, those are hard. Try to come to the Bible and say, God, help me get rid of the oughts and shoulds for a minute. <laughs> There's things on my list to do, right? There's all kinds of oughts that I should get to right now. Help me just to focus in here uh, and have some silence in that. Again, this is that be still and know uh, that I am God type stuff. Um, so there are times of study where it's just silence. It's okay with that. I'm not expecting God to start speaking to me audibly, but it's okay just to sit there before your Bible and just be quiet. Just look at it. Right? Just read it. Um, again, we're after formation, um, not, uh, not just information in what we're doing. Okay? Uh, this leads to pretty, pretty uh, simply the meditation principle. Um, this is an addressing the meaning of a passage. We are moving from what a passage says to what it means by what it says. We want to know the significance of our observations and answer our questions, which will only come through meditation. Uh, it has a way of meditation, as the Bible speaks of, it's different than modern-day meditation. A lot of times, modern-day meditation is emptying one's mind. And we did talk about the importance of silence and solitude, which I guess would be something like that. But this biblical meditation is filling up the mind. Okay, It's like... Um, if you ever eat steak, you know, we used to call it, back in Virginia, we called it grizzle. Do we still call it grizzle? you call it gristle here? Gristle, like fat, kind of, you can't chew it up, you just chew, 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 and it never goes away, and you got to spit it out. That, it won't break down. That's meditation to me. It's like just chewing. You're just chewing, 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 chewing on something, um, on a truth, and just continue to mull it over in that way. And that leads a lot of times to good memorization, too. The more you can chew on it, the more it kind of sticks inside of your head. And so this is the kind of meditation principle, uh, which is an important principle as we kind of dig into the interpretation part. Uh, D, the, the literal principle. Um, this is uh, pretty simple. The basic principle is if the normal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, and don't depart into nonsense. There you go. The basic principle is if the normal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, and don't depart into nonsense. Okay? And a lot of times you go, oh, that's too simple. It can't be that. Well, it might be that simple. Right? So don't try to jump into like, oh, it's got to be deeper meaning than this. Um, kind of thing, okay? So, uh, while we're going to be literal, we do understand, uh, we do need to understand that the Bible is literature again, figures of speech, symbolic figurative language at times. Uh, Jesus is called the Lamb of God in John one twenty nine. It's obviously a symbol of something else. They need to understand about lambs and sacrifices in order to understand that. Um, but one of the things I would say in this literal principle is beware what we call allegorical interpretation. Allegorical is that uh, where a force um, is where you force a kind of hidden or secret meaning or spiritual meaning that's not in the text and you kind of import it into that. It kind of leads you away from the intended meaning of a text. A lot of times it's spurred on by some pride of like, I'm going to find something that no one else has found kind of thing. Um, so, for example, to properly understand the Old Testament, we were talking about in a minute the redemptive principle, we got to connect to the person work of Christ. But we can't be getting crazy with that. Right? Hebrews tells us pretty simply, Jesus fulfilled the priesthood. He fulfilled the sacrificial system, the old covenant. Like, there's all kinds of things. But we don't want to go allegorical, meaning like, I'm going to go to every little item of furniture that's in that temple. And how that temple, how all those pieces, that's Jesus right there. And that, that means this, and that means that. And you're going like, okay, we're, we're going way too far. Okay? We're getting way too detailed of trying to find hidden meanings in little pieces of furniture inside the temple. Okay? It was a piece of furniture in the temple. Let's like let that be. Um, let's not try to import kind of things into that uh, passage. And one of the things that I'll bring up quite a few times here is this. And that is is that when you're looking at a, there's a word, and then that word, it fits into verse. And that verse fits into a paragraph. And that paragraph fits into a chapter. And that chapter fits into a book. That book fits into a testament. And that 
Testament fits into the story of the Bible. Okay, there's one storyline. So what I'm saying is like, and we're doing in scriptures, we're we're digging really tight, really close down to a word, and then eventually we got to always pull the camera back mm-hmm. so we see the whole picture. Eventually, like how does this fit into the grand storylines? That's the the work that we're doing. We're digging really close, and then we got to pull all the way back out so that we connect it all uh, to that story. Okay, uh, grammatical principle. This is understanding the relationship between words. Again, it's uh, observing verb tenses, past, present, future, modifying words, pronouns, all that good stuff. That's really fun English grammar stuff that you never knew would come back to help you, but it does. All right? So what do specific words mean? Okay, what, what do they mean by that? Um, you'll find that sometimes you've got, especially words that are repeated. I mentioned earlier, like the word fellowship in first John. Like, what does that word mean? i got to look that word up. i got to figure out what's going on. Sometimes a, a regular English dictionary is helpful. Um, sometimes these study Bibles are helpful. Uh, they're helpful tools to look at. Study Bibles can have some notes. Uh, things called commentaries, as we mentioned back in your earlier, at the uh, kind of beginning of the class. Some Bible websites can be helpful with that. Uh, like I said Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, Bible.com. These are all websites that are really helpful that can kind of give you some, some, um, some understanding of that. So again, observing the, t- uh, the context is, again, uh, vital to determining what the author means when he uses a certain word. So always remember context is king. We talked about last week the whole, you know, Paul used in Romans the word justification. James used it in James 2, justification, and they actually mean two different things. They're the same word, but they're written by two different authors using those words in two different ways. So we always got to remember that just because a word says is used here by James and a word used by Paul here, they may not, they may, or they may not mean the same thing. I need to, context is going to tell me what those words mean. So we have to be careful not to assume too quickly a meaning um, of a word, okay? So questions that, um, sorry, I did that. Questions we ask, uh, how do the words in a sense relate to each other? It's one of those. What is the author trying to say uh, in this sentence? Again, I'm trying to, to put those words together uh, a lot of times in my own words. How do the sentences relate to each other? Um, what's the main point of the paragraph? A lot of times your main point that is going to be communicated, especially if you're in a New Testament epistle, is verbs. There's a verb there. There's a main verb, right? Uh, Matthew 28 that Eddie taught this morning, you know, go therefore and make disciples. Well, make disciples is the main verb. And then it goes on to say a lot of uh, participles, baptizing them, I-N-G, you know, teaching them, I-N-G, right? These are all subset to what's my main point, go make disciples. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Here's how we do it. That's, that's my outline. Pretty simple sermon. Go make disciples, baptize and teach them. Okay, that's it. There it is. It's, it, gave it, it gave it to me. Um, so you're looking for verbs. Verbs are what kind of move the major points along um, in that way. Okay. What's the one theme that unites the author's discussion in this section? Again, it's often helpful to attempt to summarize the passages in a single sentence, keep the big picture in mind. And then how would the original readers have understood uh, what was written? Okay, what, what was going on in, in their understanding? Uh, F, uh, scripture interpreting scripture principle. Uh, this is a principle that scripture, the word of God, is self-authenticating. So it's clearly a rational reader and is its own interpreter. Sometimes uh, the words that we use in this one back in the Reformation, they call it the sola scriptura. Um, another word used for that is called the analogy of scripture. What that means basically is scripture is the best thing to use to interpret scripture. <laughs> okay, so I can go and find other passages on this. So it is helpful to consider other passages. 
Uh, this, this step also helps us clarify difficult passages. So if you run across something that's difficult to understand, it's helpful to go find, like, what's a parallel to this? Sometimes if you have a study Bible, it'll have a footnote, and it'll give you some parallel passages to look at. That can be helpful. Uh, some of these websites can be helpful, too. Uh, it helps broaden and expand sometimes the meaning of a particular passage uh, as well. So those are all important principles uh, as we look at that. So using that cross-reference kind of thing. Uh, letter G, if you, we've talked this already. Uh, quite, quite, quite often, the contextual principle, again, historical, literary, immediate, and gospel context of the passage you're studying, we need to consider those. Uh, if we're going to overcome the various barriers that stand between us and the ancient Near Eastern world, we need to understand context. What happened before, what's happening afterwards, right? Don't ever bail on that one, by the way. After you study, if you're jumping into a passage in the middle of a book, don't just read what happened before it. Read what happens after, because sometimes afterwards will help clarify um, what's happening. Um, so, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example of that one I just ran into a couple weeks ago. So Ephesians, so Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about this whole, uh, let everyone lead uh, the life they're supposed to, supposed to lead. Um, he goes into, um, where was that at? Well, no, I can't remember what it was. Um, never mind. No, I can't remember. But, but a lot of times you'll find that, and he'll go on, never, he'll go on later on and say, now here's what I mean by that. Because you can get into confusion, like, what is this talking about? If you keep reading, sometimes it'll clarify the meaning of what passage that you're in at that specific time. Okay? But real estate, just like in real estate, location, 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 Bible study, Context, context, context. Okay, very, very important for that. Uh, same kind of idea I gave before: word, verse, paragraph, chapter, book, testament, story of the Bible. Right? We're just everything's got to. We got to get very specific and then pull back a little piece of the time till the camera fits the whole, the whole panorama is in there. Okay. Um, again, what's the author's point? What am I looking for? Why did include it here, not somewhere else? Um, the authors of scripture didn't arrange their stuff in random order. <laughs> they had a they had a purpose behind it. Uh, and what they were saying. So, again, learning to paraphrase those, put them into those. And again, context is important. Let me give you an example. Anybody remember this guy? Evander Holyfield. Yeah, there he is. Guys, Philippians 14. There it is on his. There he has it here on his thing. Here's another one. Famous, famous uh, old Tim Tebow. Philippians 4:13. Right? You know what Philippians 4:13 is? What is it? I can do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't think Paul meant football or boxing, <laughs> right, in that context. But it's interesting. So if you look at the text, okay, if you look at the text, here, here's what, this, again, why context is important. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. Do Christ who strengthens me. What are the all things? Live in what way, though? In what context? Yeah, in in suffering, right? He's talking about in in having plenty and having little. Like, I learned that I can do through Christ. I can live when when I don't have enough money, when I don't have enough food. That's that's what Philippians 4.13 is talking about, right? It's not talking about boxing and football, right? So, I mean, this is what we do. We just rip verses out and we apply them because, hey, that that sounds like a really good bumper sticker right there. Let's just pull that one out. Um, Context is always king. It will help us understand um, what is actually going on, what the application specifically is. Uh, Verses aren't just randomly put there. They have a context to them, okay? They have real estate, (laughs) okay? Again, same idea um, of what we're doing. Let me give you another verse uh, example of this one. I think I've got it on here. I don't. 
that first Peter down for yours? Yeah. All right. So first Peter is going to tell us what humility looks like, right? So look at this. Verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What does it mean, specifically, to humble yourself in that context? What's it look like for someone to humble themselves? What do they do? They're not prideful. They're not prideful. That's what we're talking about there. But what does it look like to not be prideful? What does he say? What comes after it? Immediately after that. (laughs) Therefore, in the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you and do what? What does it say? Casting your anxieties. That's specifically to Peter what it looks like to be humble. Mm -hmm. To be humble is to go, I'm not going to carry my own anxieties and my own worries and say, I've got it. I won't be humble enough to go, God, I don't have it. You see? That's what humility, specifically, to Peter, looks like. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like to humble yourself. Because humble yourself can be like, it's a very vague, kind of like, really broad meaning. But specifically, if you just keep reading, Peter says, hey, it looks like casting your anxieties on Jesus. That's truly humble. That's truly mm-hmm. that's a trouble. We want to carry our own stuff. We want to deal with our own problems. And Peter's going like, no, be humble and hand it over to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, again, just keep reading. Context will help us uh, in that way. Uh, H, historical cultural principle. Uh, this is, uh, in, in order to interpret the Bible correctly, you must discern the historical setting and cultural norms in which the author wrote and the recipients heard, heard the letter for the first time. This is honestly the hardest part, okay? This is that part I mentioned, you mentioned earlier, like, where do you get this stuff from? Um, you know, this is, this is where we need, we need some help. We need some historians. We need some, you know, some people who have done some work in the, in the field um, who have, uh, you know, dug up some stuff and can tell us they've, they've got some ancient writings and different things that they've seen. This is, this is helpful. These areas of study are, are super helpful. A lot of times your study Bibles um, will have at the beginning of a book, will have you give you some background. Right? If you get Ephesians, it will give you a whole story about Ephesians. Like, here's where Ephesus was on the map. And it'll give you, like, a little map sometimes. It'll be like, and here's what Ephesus was known for. And da, 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 right? These are all, ju- those aren't Bible, like, truths. I mean, you, you can't, you got to be careful. Some of it could be erroneous, right? Some of it could be wrong. So that's why you check multiple kind of authors or multiple writers and being like, yeah, everyone's saying that Corinth was pretty messed up. <laughs> so they say, okay. Um, everyone's saying that's where the, ga- you know, it, it's in the game's, you know, we're held, and we'll talk about this on Sunday, and why, why that was important for 1 Corinthians 9, and why Paul says, talking about, you know, boxing and running, and like, where'd that come from? Oh, that's because the Corinthians knew about that. They saw it every other year, every spring. You know, they saw, they saw these games happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of going back to that. It is, a, it is a difficult one, but it is one you can learn, and one you can get the right resources for that. Like, earlier on in the um, first class, I told you it was one commentary series by a guy named William Barclay. And I said, theology, horrible. Don't get your theology from this guy. But his background work is really good. It's what he's known for. He's an historian, not a theologian. Uh, he tries to be a theologian at times, and he should stop. But, um, <clears throat> but his history stuff is really good. I mean, it really is. He's got a lot of good stuff. Um, so again, so in this one, historical, we're looking at uh, uh, writer, reader, the political setting, the places, the dates, all that good stuff. Um, you know, what's the significance of Jesus standing before Pilate? Who was Pilate? Where did he come from? Mm-hmm. What's the fact of standing before, you know, um, Herod? Like, well, where did Herod come from? Who is this guy? 
um, culturally, I'm understanding like behaviors and practices, uh, traditions, even understanding religion at the time. Like, what did the Greeks believe religiously? Like, what did the Jewish people believe religiously? What did they understand about God? That's all stuff we can find. It, lots of people have written about that kind of stuff. Um, you can find all kinds of things on that. And so it's important to understand those things and, uh, and what was going on. So, for example, I'll give you... Um, I'll help you out it's here. It's empty. It's oh, that's okay. Well, I'll give it to you anyway. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> sure. My glasses. There we go. All right. Um, Luke 7. Jesus raises, um, raises a widow's son from the dead. What's the main, what's trying to, what's he communicate that? Now, we could say, well, I mean, obviously what's being communicated is Jesus' compassion. That's obviously the point. His compassion is being shown. But um, what is the significance of the fact that it was the widow's only son? Well, we've got to go back to the culture and go like, okay, for a widow in that culture, um, he, she didn't have a husband. The only person who would have taken care of her would have been her son. Well, she just lost her only son. She doesn't have a husband now. She doesn't have a son. She has no kids. <clears throat> well, what does that mean? She's going to be impoverished and poor. She's going to be homeless. She's probably going to die. So Jesus raises the son is so much more significant than just raising a random person. Like this meant a lot to this lady, not just the fact that it was her son, but it also was her livelihood. It was how she was taken care of. Well, I got to understand widows in that culture to be able to really get the point or get the depth behind that, you see. So that's why that kind of stuff comes in handy. Not assuming that when you read something like that, right, you read a widow's son, you're like, oh yeah, I know, I know somebody who's a widow. and blah, blah, blah. It's a little different back then. I need to understand what, is it, what was a widow like back then not necessarily what is it like today, okay? Uh, redemptive principle. Um, this is, uh, uh, every passage of scripture has a uh, kind of gospel context. Um, this principle moves the story of the Bible from mere facts to seeing glory as we see the person and work of Christ. And so we're moving all of that uh, to a forward principle, okay? Um, this is, uh, this principle means we, we take what we call the, uh, let's see if I got it here, yeah, the, the micro context, or what we call a basic narrative of a story, and put it into a macro context, or sometimes the, the word that's used a lot is called meta-narrative. And that, don't be afraid of that word. Meta, big, narrative, story. The big story, right? So that means the Bible has a very specific, immediate story that I'm reading. Jesus raised the widow's son, right? That's a, that's a, a specific story. But it's within a greater story line, we call the, the, again, the grand story, the big story line of that. And so we're always kind of putting those pieces together. And so to kind of give you some, some idea here, and I, I don't know, I keep putting this up there, but it's, this is what we're doing to get to our redemptive principles. We've got to get to the story of the Bible, um, the story of the gospel, and again, the, the life, burial, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, here's some, some ideas. So if, if I just take a literal historical approach, I, inter- I interpret the human biblical author's original meaning without alignment with meaning of the other human biblical author. So I'm just very focused on this very one just Ephesians, and I'm just going to interpret Ephesians based on Ephesians, and that's all I'm going. Mm-hmm. We're going to say, we've got to pull back a little further. Well, to pull back a little further, we could say, well, let's add the grammatical side of that. Um, I interpret the human biblical author's original meaning in alignment with other human authors, uh, but I don't look for the meaning of the text that the human author didn't put there. But the last one, we had the redemptive mm-hmm. side of things. We're saying we're also looking for the meaning of the divine author that the human author may not have known. So, for example, when David and Goliath are fighting... You know, David kills Goliath, right? You, you, could very, you could very much interpret that as a very moralistic story. Um, you know, I heard Tim Keller say one time that, like, kids don't know they should, like, sue their Sunday school teachers for malpractice because of how they teach these stories. But it's like, you could, t- you could teach it and be like, you know what, the principle is, guys, you know what? You have giants in your life. 
And, uh, you know, God can help you conquer those giants just like David conquered his giants. Now go get them. It's like, well, that, that's not, you got to pull back a minute and be like, what, what's the grand story? Like, how does this fit into the story of redemption? And you go like, okay, you can see the connection to that. I'd be like, yeah, well, Jesus ultimately was like the greater David here, right? He defeated our greatest enemy, sin, death, hell, Satan himself. So we can be free now to, I can apply, to face our own, you know, giants, our fears and all that stuff. So I, I get there, but I got there through the gospel, you see. I, mean, I still got to the same application point, and I can still make that. But if I don't get to the gospel, I don't get the, the power in the people's hands to actually go do it, or the motivation to go do it. It's just very moralistic. It's very much, you need to go get it done kind of thing. And if you don't get to this, you don't get to Jesus, then it's, I can tell you what, it's really easy to make people feel guilty. I could stand up there on a sermon on Sunday and be like, you need to pray more. And then I could just drop the mic and walk away. And everyone would be like, you're right. Totally I do. Right? All right. Next Sunday we'll talk about evangelism. You guys don't evangelize enough. You're right. You know, so I mean, the goal is not guilt, right? The goal is to have people see Christ and to be so motivated that, that they're, 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 they want to move past that, right? You want to, people leave with worship of Christ, not worship of themselves. Mm -hmm. If it's moralistic and it's all you do this and you go do that and you do this, it means it's all on me when I leave. Mm -hmm. All right, I got to go do this. And that usually lasts till about Monday morning. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can't do this. All right, forget it, right? But if I've got the, the person of Christ, I've got the motivation from who he is and what he's done for me, that then motivates me to go like, I can push past my fears, right? I can push, he's with me, right? And uh, he's done this for me and he's going to do this with me. And so that, that motivation, that central piece is so vitally important um, as we get to that. And so again, that's a, 